All right, well, let's turn there. Judges chapter 6. And we're going to begin uh, reading verse 1 about Gideon. Of course, here in the book of Judges, we're looking at a cycle where the children of Israel do what is right in their own eyes. And they rebel against the Lord. They break the covenant with Yahweh. And they begin to worship the Asherahs and the Baals. They get caught up in the sins of the Amorites. And true to God's promise that if they did that, that judgment would come upon them, he brings judgment upon them. And God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to the promises that bring blessing. He is also faithful to bring the consequences of those things that he's warned us against. God is faithful to his word. And so they experience this. They begin to go under some time of oppression, some season of oppression. It varies in time. Um, the Lord begins to uh, make the life miserable. Um, they call out to the Lord. He has mercy upon them, raises up a deliverer. And then whatever the army is or whatever the people are, we're going to read about the Midianites and the Amalekites here uh, tonight that were uh, imposing their will upon him. And um, they are delivered. And then a season will go where they follow the Lord. And then we'll go right back into that same cycle. So that's, that's kind of what we've been looking at. Uh, tonight, three, um, in each of these chapters, three main takeaways. Um, we're going to see <coughs> that God makes a choice of a very unlikely leader, yeah, which should give us all hope. Um, we're also going to learn that God does not share his glory. And he will go to some interesting um, lengths to make certain that no man will take that glory and then we're going to get a strong reminder at the end of Gideon's life to finish well and not forget the former lesson. So with that as our introduction, chapter 6, verse 1, when the, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here we have the introduction, kind of the setup for where, where the nation is. They are in rebellion against the Lord. We're going to find out in um, uh, Chapter 8, verse 10, that this innumerable number um, was maybe as many as 135,000 or more. Um, and that's going to become a very significant number when you find out that God's going to reduce Gideon's army down to 300 men to go out and fight. Well, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham and his wife Keturah. Yes, Abraham was married after Sarah passed away. Um, the Midianites were... Um, you will remember that it was to the Midianites that the brothers sold Joseph, right? And um, they were defeated by Israel in Numbers 25. Even, I think, in our last study, we read about uh, the Kenites um, were dwelling among the Israelites, and there was a friendly relationship with them. But there also were some other Midianites that were not so pro-Israel. And um, this is that, that group. So that kind of is our backdrop. Verse 7, And it came to pass... When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. Verse 9, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites and whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the Lord is going to have mercy upon him. He's going to uh, bring the prophet in, and this is the message that he brings. You are reaping the consequences for your rebellion against me. 
It is amazing how often um, people will rebel against the Lord, sin against the Lord. They know, maybe they've even warned others not to sin in the same way, and then they go out and they sin and they rebel, and friends and family and, and the church and brothers and sisters in the Lord are warning them, saying, don't do this, there's going to be consequences. And, the concept, and they ignore and they press forward. They forge out into that place of rebellion and hard things begin to come upon them. And oftentimes people will begin to blame the Lord. It's like, Lord, if you really love me, this wouldn't happen. And he says, no, whom I love, I chasten. And this is the chastening of the Lord. And I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord tonight. Maybe you have ventured out into the ways of the Amorites. You are pressing out into the edges of where God has said, don't go. And you're beginning to feel the, the heavy hand of uh, the consequences of those choices upon your life. You're loved. God cares for you. And he is not going to let you wander off into those things without feeling the consequences. And so don't be angry at the Lord. Understand that he's been faithful to his word and he wants you to come back. And, and you know, maybe you are here and you're even like, what is going on? And, 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 and he's speaking to you right now. The, the best thing you can do is run quickly into the, to the arms of the Lord. He tells them, he says, listen, I've delivered you before. I took you out of Egypt. I can take you out from the hand of the Midianites. And so the Lord is willing to be gracious to them as he is to all of us. When we, All we have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And as you come to him, he's ready to receive you back. Now God is never approving of our sin, but he's always willing to deliver the broken. Those that are willing, as we talked about in James, to lament and to weep over their sin, right? To humble themselves. God is so quick to bring us back. Let's look at verse 11. We are introduced to Gideon here. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, the son of Gideon, uh, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. He's hiding in fear, and yet the Lord says, you're a mighty man of valor. God sees what's coming. He doesn't see, he's not seeing what is. He's seeing what's going to come. Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So what is he saying? You have gone to the bottom of the barrel. I mean, you, you've gone to the very, very bottom to find somebody to do this. In verse 16, we'll read it down to verse 18. Verse 16 says, And then the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you uh, who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I'll wait until you come back. And so we see the patience of the Lord here. So the call of God. The Lord calls Gideon mighty man of valor while threshing wheat in a wine press. So you put up a the picture of that wine press. And um, so obviously archaeological dig here. But you can, you can catch it here. Um, that this is where they would, you know, on that platform, they would, they would you know, you know uh, press the grapes. And then they would catch the, the juice. And they would often put this... Um, you know, in a, in a shaded area among trees. And, um, you know, that, that was an ideal place for them to do that. But it was, you know, this was a small operation, right? You didn't need a big footprint to um, have a wine press. Um, the next, next picture shows you uh, those that are threshing wheat and they're using sleds and, and, and donkeys to drive this. Um, and you, you get a sense of that's where you would thresh. On top of a mountain, where the wind could easily blow 
And as you're separating um, the wheat from the chaff, you can collect the, the kernels. And so um, to get in an, an enclosed area, like a, a wine press in a small area, um, there maybe there's a couple of things you, know, you can um, deduce for that. One, it would have been a completely miserable place to do that. It would not have been a pleasant experience. Um, you just imagine in this little cool shade area, not a lot of breeze, you, and you have all of this dust that's going on, and you are, you're in that. It also may indicate how small of a harvest they had, um, you know, and that they, there wasn't much that they had. That, that could be conjecture there, but I, I don't know. Imagine mowing your yard in, you know, if you had to mow the yard inside your garage, you know, this kind of the idea. It'd be, it was not a pleasant experience to have that going on. But this is what he's doing. He's hiding. He's hiding, and the Lord comes to him in this place of hiding, and he says, you're a mighty man of valor. And of course, Gideon's like, wow, I think you got the wrong address here. I'm not a mighty man of valor. I'm actually the very opposite of what you think I am or who you think I am. And so um, this is where the Lord says, well, I'm going to be with you. And that is the difference maker, isn't it? I'm going to be with you. Um, you go with the strength that you have, and you're going to be delivered because I'm going to go with you. You don't have to be a great strategist. You don't have to have great power and great weapons because I will be with you. And that's, again, verse 16. That's the, what the Lord says. Surely I will be with you. And it's something that Gideon is going to have to come to that place where he believes the certainty of that statement, surely. He's not, he's not there yet, um, but he's going to uh, go through a couple of different tests um, with the Lord to see if he is actually hearing correctly. Um, and so he not only is a fearful man, but his faith is not strong. I mean, he's having a divine encounter with God. I believe this is a, a theophany um, that, that he's experiencing here. And, and he's, he's, he's having a hard time buying it. Uh, let's pick up the story, verse 19. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight." Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So he comes to this conclusion. And so now, having had this experience, what he's been called to is going to begin to work in his heart and on his mind. And so it is gracious of God that he meets him in that, that kind of place of not having developed faith to help bring him along. Um, in verse 19, uh, so Gideon, um, I know moving on to verse 25, sorry. Um, so Gideon, um, verse 23, then the Lord said, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father uh, has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image, that would be the Asherah pole, which you have cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's house and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So it's like, I'm going to use you, but you're going to get your household clean first. You're going to make certain that the place where you are, your dad's house, your dad has done these things, and you're going to have to do this. And he realizes that this uh, worship of Baal has become um, incredibly important to the people. So much so that we're going to read here in just a moment that they want to kill him um, for doing this. 
And, you know, so what, when you think of the worship of Baal, I, there it is. That's the guy. This is the, uh, the one that just caused them to turn their back on the God uh, on the God of Israel and the one that did perform so many miracles in their sight, been so gracious. And this is the one. This is the, the image of Baal. That, um, and there are many that look, you know, others that look like him. That's a pretty kind of typical look. That's what they're worshiping. That's what they've turned their back on. The creator of the universe for, you know, I don't know, to me it looks like a fifth grade, you know, clay project that I would have done and got a C minus on. But this is, this, is what they're, this is what they're doing. This is what they're, they were working on. And so he's going to call them to do this. And, and Gideon, to his credit, he steps up. He does it. So he uses the wood from the, um, uh, the, you know, the worship, the Ashereth pole. He kills the bull. It does all of this. It is completely destroyed. And this does not make the town people very happy at all. And so they're going to come out against him. They're going to want to, um, you know, do harm to him. So let's, let's keep on reading this story here. Verse 28. Uh, then, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it, it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Do you really want to do this? You, you, are you really going to take up this, we, you know, obviously they knew that there was, this was sinful. They knew that it was rebellion against the Lord. And yet they're walking. He's like, is this really what you want to do? Are you really want to plead for him and take up this cause? And, um, you know, they, they're going to get intimidated. They're going to, they're going to back down. Um, he says, would you have, would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. He goes, if this God is any God, then let him take up his own defense. But if any of you want to take up defense of him, you're going to be put to death. Therefore, on, the day, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites and people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Bezerites gathered uh, behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and also gathered behind him. Uh, he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So he's done what the Lord has called him to do. He's taken up this, and um, you know he is given a nickname, Jerubbabel, meaning uh, let Bel contend. Probably they, in the beginning, they used it in a derogatory sense. But as time went on, this became a name that really was honor. It was an honored name. It's like, yeah, look at what Gideon did. He took on, on Baal and he took on all of these other things. And, um, you know, Baal didn't do a thing. Well, they're coming into the Valley of Jezreel. And Jezreel is a super fertile part of the land of Israel, even to this day. You guys can put the slide up there. And when you go into this area... Um, and it is quite large. Um, this is just one glimpse at it. Actually, this is, um, this is taken from the western side of it. It's from Mount Carmel looking out. Okay, So um, and as you keep on going over there, uh, you'll find you know, uh, Megiddo. The city of Megiddo will be out there on the right. Um, the, the Gideon Spring is going to be out there on the right, and you're going to have uh, Mount Tabor on the left. So there's a lot of things that have gone on here. But, um, and there's a lot that, you know, of battles that take place, even as we go through the book of Judges. But there's going to be an end-time battle that's going to happen in this valley, right? It's in this same valley. So the, it's the battle of Armageddon takes place in Jezreel Valley. And so that is where um, the, the armies of the world will gather together uh, to come and destroy Israel because they can't stand her. I know that sounds real far-fetched. 
right? No, it doesn't sound far-fetched at all. Read, I mean, you listen to the news. I mean, protests all over the world. And um, you say, somebody says, I don't understand this. Why do they hate them so much? Because this, it has to be. There has to be this hatred at the end of the age, which is not in any way to affirm that or think that it's good. It's, a, it's an evil thing, but they're going to gather together. There's going to have to, what is it going to take for the nations of the world to gather here to destroy Israel? And um, I guess in my mind, I'm not going to expand much upon it, but I'll say one wrong move right now. That's all it would take. One wrong move or one perceived wrong move. And that's all that would take for them, for this whole prophecy to be ready to, to be fulfilled. Only the Lord knows the day and the hour. But boy, it's going to be a moment like this, if it's not this moment, that will precede the coming of the Lord. And then that battle will take place right there. This is also the valley where Barak, uh, Deborah and Barak had their victory. So a lot of things have happened in, in this uh, valley. This is where you know, the prophets of Baal were, were cut down. But we read in verse 34 that the Spirit comes upon Gideon. The Lord is with Gideon. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. This is interesting. We read throughout um, the Old Testament different times when the Spirit of the Lord would come upon certain uh, individuals that God was, was using. And um, here's an example where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. But this was, this was not the common thing. For the Spirit of the Lord to come upon somebody, this happened, this wasn't everybody that had this wonderful experience of the enabling uh, power of the Spirit of God upon their life under the Old Covenant. It happened to some. But under the New Covenant, Acts chapter 2 is very different, isn't it? And the prophecy of Joel is that in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit upon what? All flesh. Your sons and your daughters, right? They're going to prophesy. Um, you're going to have visions. They're going to have dreams. The old guys are going to have dreams. They're going to have visions. All of this is going to take place. But I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And there was 120 gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when this took place. And the spirit of the Lord came upon them. And as you read through the book of Acts, um, what you read happening over and over again is the spirit of the Lord coming upon um, the church and individuals. Pay attention to the word, that little preposition, upon, as you read through the book of Acts. Um, so we see a, you know, it happening with Gideon, but for us, everybody, you know, the Lord wants to pour his spirit upon you, and, and you know, this is what's needed to do the things that God calls us to do, right? We need his enabling. We need his power. We need his spirit, and he is not stingy. This is his desire, is to have all of us walk in this fullness and this power. And, and I listen, there, there's debates that happen. Well, as soon as you get saved, you know, you have this power. Everybody has it. And, you know, you don't need to look for any further manifestation, you know, of this. And, and this is what I would say. Is the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life when you in the same manner as when you read through the book of Acts? Do you see the power of the Holy Spirit functioning and moving through your life? And if you would say, no, I don't, then ask the Lord for that enabling in that, that power upon you. Um, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Ask for the working of the Spirit. John 14, 16 through 18 says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, and I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And so every believer has that experience that as you, before you come to the Lord, he is drawing you unto himself, and then as you receive Christ, he comes and he dwells within you. But then Acts 2, 38-39, then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That's you. You're the far off group. I'm the far off group. I mean, you think about Acts chapter 2. Was he thinking about Lynchburg, Virginia? I don't think so. I don't think it was anywhere near, but he just knew that afar off, there's going to be a group of people that are going to need the power of the Holy Spirit upon them, as many as the Lord our God will call. 
So when you step out, like Gideon stepped out into the call of God, you're not stepping out in your own power and in your own might. You're stepping out trusting and believing that God is going to enable you to do the work that he's called you to do. He's going to gift you with those gifts that you need to accomplish them. And I would encourage you um, that when you count yourself out of the call of God upon your life or the, that you feel him kind of pulling you into something and you begin to say, I can't do it, I don't have it, you can, you can say, that's absolutely right. I can't do it and I don't have it on my own. However... The Lord has sent his spirit upon the church. He has sent his spirit upon you. And pray for that fresh filling of the spirit and step out into those works that the Lord has for you. So many people don't step out because they never get past. Uh, you have, you've gone to the weakest tribe. You've gone to the weakest family of the tribe. And you've gone to the weakest man or woman of the family. And you found me. And we don't ever move from there. Gideon understood who he was, but he also had experienced God. And he heard him working and moving, and he was willing to step out into it. Um, you know, there just comes a point where you've got to get your eyes off yourself. You just got to get it off yourself. You can be, it can, you know, really, you can be so caught up with your own shortcomings that it ends up turning into pride. Because pride is really nothing more than a preoccupation with self. So you can be, I'm great, I'm awesome, and Gideon's going to struggle with this at the end of his life. I'm great, I'm awesome, and, and that's pride. Or you can turn pride inside out, and you can say, I'm terrible, I'm worthless, I'm no good. And, but it's still a preoccupation with self. Can you see that? And we've got to get to the place where we're, we, we just see the Lord. Okay, yeah, all right. So you're the weakest one. You're, you're the least likely individual. But if God's calling you to do it, He's going to enable you to do it because God is concerned about his glory. Step up and answer the call of the Lord. Don't be afraid. So Gideon has already put one test before the Lord. Now he's going to put two more tests before the Lord. And it's a sign of the fleece. So Gideon said to God, verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, <laughs> okay, just stop right there. You know, you said it. I know that you are God. I, I watched the, the rock ignite with fire and the, you know, the, the sacrifice be consumed. And I had a conversation with you. And I've, I've, I've seen all of this. You told me to tear down the altar. I did that. I, I sensed your spirit upon me um, even now. So Gideon said, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, so if it's wet and uh, the, the ground is dry, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand as you've said. And it was so. When he rose early in the, morning, the next morning and squeezed the fleece to, uh, together, he wrung out the dew out of the fleece, um, a bowl full of water. And then he reverses it. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Uh, let me say I pray. Uh, just once more with the fleece. Let now be dry on the fleece and all the ground you know, have the dew. And that's exactly what happened. So he puts a fleece out. So let me correct. Here, some of you are not going to like this. This is not a model of what we should be doing. This is an example of a lack of faith. This is an example of a lack of faith. Now, God is gracious and merciful, and he steps up into it. But we have this idea of, well, I'm going to set a fleece before the Lord. Okay, you know, listen, I, I think God is still gracious. And when there's moments of lacks of, and we lack faith and we call upon him, you know, he still can be gracious and, and he can meet us in that moment. But this is not a model for how we should pray. This is an example of a man who says, I know what you've said, God, but I want to make certain that you're really going to do it. That's not a model to follow, is it? So um, let me just read to you, um, uh, and I'm going to read to him because I just love to say his name. But Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, Gideon's use of the fleece was not a sign of his spirituality, but a sign of his very weak faith. It was not the sign of a mature believer, but a mark of an immature believer who had trouble believing what God had already told him. Can you see why this is not a, an example of how we should be praying? 
Now you say, well, God, you know, if you say, well, God, I've, I've laid out fleeces before the Lord and he's answered it, great. I have and he never has answered my fleece. And I still know that there are things that I was supposed to do and I went ahead. So, I, you know, there are times where I'm like, all right, Lord, let this happen. It didn't happen. All right, then I'm not going to do it. I'm like, no, I've got to do this. I know, this. I know what the Spirit of God is saying to me in my own heart and mind. And so, listen, you have something that is far more significant, far more amazing than a fleece getting wet or staying dry. And you want to know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who speaks to you and leads you and guides you. You have the, the, the voice of Almighty God speaking into your life. He dwells with you. We just read that in John 14. He dwells within you. We should make much more of the voice of the Lord. And if you have to have a fleece, God may or may not choose to um, play along. <laughs> He's sovereign God. He's never played along with me. I know some of you will have the story, and I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm just saying, you know, Lord, speak to me. I can remember when we were thinking about moving out here, and um, there came that critical moment on a Sunday morning, and I just remember praying, Lord, do we make this decision to go? And, um, and I remember this is my prayer went something like this. I said, Lord, this is what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for you to speak to me. Because if you speak to me, I won't doubt that. But this mind right here, like, you know, the whole fleece thing would really, I, I would... The way my mind works, I, that I would tear that apart and it would become insignificant. That's just the way my mind works. I would begin to like, well, what kind of foolish game was I playing with this, this and you know what? And, and I wouldn't do it. I said, but Lord, if you speak to me, I, I won't run from that. I will know that. And I can, I, I'll tell you, I don't know how to express it in words other than the Lord said, go. I just, not an audible voice, but just... And, you know, I was, I was laid out on the carpet just seeking the face. Lord, Rebecca was upstairs in bed. Kids were asleep. It was early on a Sunday morning. I said, Lord, just let me know. He, says, he said, go. And I just, I just got on my, my face. I said, Lord, did you say, you said go? I think you're saying go. I'm going to go. And I walked up um, the stairs right before I was ready to go. I gave her a kiss. I said, we're going to Lynchburg. So she came to third service, and she, we were sitting next to each other. And she leaned over to me, and she goes, did you say we're going to Lynchburg? So that's how, uh, how I announced we were going. And she's like, all right, as long as you know, you've heard the voice of the Lord. And I did. And so make a big deal about the voice of the Lord leading you and guiding you. So anyways, God is gracious to him and he helps develop him. And, and really, I mean, look at Gideon. Look at the days in which he was living. I mean, how far they were from the cross and Jesus dying and rising from the dead and all the fulfillment of prophecy. They're in a time of high rebellion and idolatry. Um, you know, God's nowhere in the midst of Israel. He's breaking through into an incredibly dark, idolatrous time, and he is gracious and merciful. I hope that's not a descriptor of your life. And so to whom much is given, much is required. Moving on into chapter 7, we see, To God be the glory. Um, then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Horod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Who's going to get the glory? The Lord's going to make certain that he gets the glory. So Gideon tests the Lord twice with the, well, let's just call it two different tests. He, you know, with the food and then with the fleece. And now the Lord is going to test him twice. Interesting, huh? He's like, oh, you know, you put me to test. Okay. You got your down payment. Now I'm coming and I'm going to ask you to follow me and to have faith. And, me, and, and to his credit, he's going to do this. But what we're going to read is God's going to shrink this already too small army down twice to just a handful of people to go out and battle against this innumerable host of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east. He says, uh, but it's too many, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, 
saying, my own, has, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Wow. Could you imagine how you would have felt watching that take place? If you're afraid, turn. And like, you're like, nah, nobody's going to turn. Nobody's going to leave. These are the men of Israel. They're going to stand strong. And 22,000 said, I heard that. You're not going to say that twice. Bye. Good luck. You know, have fun storming the castle. We're out of here. Um, you're, you're on your own. And only 10,000 remain. But the Lord said to Gideon, second test, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. And I will test them for you there. He's like, Gideon's like, I don't need a test. He's like, well, you're going to have a test. You're going to have this. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the uh, water. Can you put up that, that slide? of? Do we have that slide of the, the spring? I think we do. You're somewhere. You can take a look. Maybe I didn't put it in there. No, I didn't put it in there. Never mind. Um, so they're going to go down to this little spring, and they got 10,000 there. And he said, I'll tell you of these who you can take. Verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his uh, tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Like, uh, likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people, so the other 9,700, have them go home. And so um, what's going on here? It's hard to know exactly. I mean, it's interesting the different... Um, uh, you know, takes on it. So I'm going to give you two different takes on it. it. It doesn't matter. God's wanting to get the glory and he gets it to 300. But, but why? So those that got down on the, uh, kind of got down and went to the water and, and drank um, from the water, um, that was the, the 9,700. The others that got down on the knee and pulled the, the water up to their mouth and drank were 300. So what's the difference? I don't know that there really, I, I kind of, I don't know that there really is a difference to make. I think it's just God wanted a small number and he knew who was going to do it one way or the other. But here's a couple of explanations. One um, explanation is, well, these were men that were alert and they were ready to fight. They were going to the knee. They were bringing the water up. They're keeping their head up. And they are, um, you know, these are the, the, the fighters. Um, and those that got down and drank, you know, were kind of careless and not really being alert to what was around them. And so that, that is one explanation. But um, a friend, Gail Irwin, I like his explanation. He says, no, he goes, you know, it would have been all the young guys that would have got all the way down to the ground. It would have been all the young guys that went all the way down there to get a drink, and then they would have popped right back up. He, he, his words, he goes, but the old fat guys would have got down on a knee and kind of got, went down to the water and brought it up. And he says, so rather than it being the elite fighting force of 300 that were alert, it actually was all the old guys. I don't know. You can, you can decide for yourself what it was. The point is 300 men. 300 men to go and fight at least 135, 132,000 uh, people. And he said, you know, we're going to do this because I'm going to get the glory. I don't want anybody in Israel to get the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25-29. through 29. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Sounds familiar right there, doesn't it? That, that last phrase, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Isn't that exactly what he said to, to Gideon? I don't want Israel to take glory. I don't want anybody to, to glory that they did this. I want everybody to realize 
It was me that ended up doing this. And so he reduces the ranks from 32,000 men down to 300. God does not work on the same value scale as us, does he? God is not worried about resources and assets and abilities and talents. Unless you want to say he makes certain to find those that don't have them. And you're like, well, you know, who are those that, are, that he's describing? Well, really, it's all of us. We all fit the category of what I just read. But there are those who think much of themselves. And are, well, they would take the credit. They would receive. And, and here's the thing that, that I have learned is that you have to not only be willing to not proactively take credit, you have to also make certain that you don't let others put the give you credit. And, and that's the piece that's a little more subtle. And, and I, you know, I won't give the details, but I remember having a conversation with a, a pastor friend, and, and um, we got into this conversation, and I, I brought up an issue that I felt uncomfortable with, I didn't think was right. And he said, oh, that's just what they do right here. They do it. I don't ask them to do it. And I said, you, you tell them to stop doing plenty of things. I know you do. I've heard you tell them to not do this and not do that, and you let them do this. And this is going to be a problem. And sadly, I was, I was right, and he didn't heed that. And it doesn't, the church doesn't even exist anymore. And, um, and, and so we have to not only say, well, I didn't go out and get, I didn't ask people to do that. You also have to be willing to stop people from giving you that. And, you know, the one is obvious, the other is subtle. And, um, but you know, you know, and I know when we're, when we're taking from God's glory. But this is how God wants to work. God does not work and say, does he, she have enough money? Does she talented enough? Does she have enough knowledge? Does he have enough uh, skill? That's not the way God works. I mean, read it. I mean, 1 Corinthians, what he says, I, I, want, I want the bottom of the barrel type people. I want, you know, people like Gideon who are the weakest of their family. That's who I want to use. That's who I'm after so that I get the glory. The Lord is self-sufficient. We don't add anything to him. The Lord never goes, Woo, I'm glad we got her on our side. Man, I'm so glad he finally came over because now, now I think we can actually accomplish something. The Lord has never once ever said that, thought that, or felt that. He is altogether sufficient and so when he chooses us and we begin to think, well, I really don't have the talents. He's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I have no talents. Perfect. No, I'm like, I'm the worst talented person you've ever come at. That's exactly who I want. And the more we protest about our inability, the higher we go up on God's list of who he wants to use. And the more we uh, proclaim our abilities and put forth all that we can bring and bring a blessing to people in, I'm speaking kind of, you know, with that pride thing, the further we go down on the list of who the Lord wants to use. So the Lord has his people. He has 300 of them that are ready to go to battle. Why have you discounted yourself? Why is it that you've not stepped out? Is it because you're looking at yourself and you see how miserable your, uh, uh, you know, your abilities are? Well, then stop doing that. Because you can see how God wants to work and move. Old Testament to New Testament. That's the principle of the Lord. So the Lord is going to strengthen the hand of, of Gideon. They're going to go out to battle. Um, and so let's pick it up. Let's see, where did we get to? We got down to verse 9. It says, And it happened that on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So they end up going down to the camp. They're eavesdropping on the, the soldiers. And one of the soldiers says, listen, I had a dream, verse 13, and it was barley bread uh, tumbled into the camp of Midian and um, it struck it and overturned it. And then um, what he ended up saying, well, this is, this is Gideon. Gideon. This dream is Gideon, and we're going, to get, we're, we're going to lose. And so verse 15, Gideon heard this. He was encouraged, and um, he had the faith. So verse 16, then he divided 300 men into three companies. So, you know, three 100 companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand. 
and empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. So you had these jars. They had a torch inside of it, and everybody had a, uh, you know, a, a horn that they could blow as a trumpet. And he said to them, look at me and, and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpet on every side. So they kind of, you know, these troops have kind of gone around the camp. I mean, this is gutsy, isn't it? 300 guys are surrounding an army of 135,000, at least 135,000. You think, I mean, this, the, these guys are courageous. And they're willing to do this. So, right, this is what we're going to do. Um, they're going to go out there into these companies. Um, verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets. So it would have been loud. I mean, it would have sounded like, you know, a huge army. Because, you know, typically, you know, not everybody is carrying a trumpet. So if 300 people are blowing trumpets, it would have been very loud. So in their minds, they're like, well, how many people must there be? So is this, the Lord has, has brought this deception and this delusion upon them. And then they break the pitchers and they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And maybe that's the beginning of the problem right there. The sword of the Lord is good and of Gideon. You know, we don't read a rebuke here, but you're going to see where it goes. And I think it would have been better off if it would have been just the sword of Yahweh. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the camp, and the army fled from Beth Acacia toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel uh, Mahola by Tabith. And so, they, there's a delusion that hits them and they are fighting each other. They're running in fear. And so we read in verse 23, all the tribes that came after them, uh, chasing them, Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers out to all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize them for, uh, seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah to the Jordan. And then they captured the two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb on the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed in the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So they, th this is a, just a miraculous victory that the Lord gives them. They're not even... Um, in the beginning, having to fight, you know, who knows how many of them died by their own hand. And um, so, the, you know, the, this tribe um, comes and Ephraim, and they come and they, they answer the call. Chapter 8. And um, what we're going to see is how soon we forget. Um, maybe just a quick word there about those closing verses of chapter 7, and how others are joining the fight. Um, God often uses a few people to inspire a lot. And I think there are so many examples of this. Um, Stephen's martyrdom, you know, looking like, you know, a dark day in the church. And yet it's the faith of Stephen that causes world evangelism to begin um, reaching out. Um, David's victory over Goliath, you know, one, one teenage boy inspires the army. Or Jonathan and his armor bearers defeat the Philistines. Or Paul in prison and others taking encouragement from prison, from him being in prison and preaching the Gospels. Philippians 1, 12 through 17 talks about that. So listen, you know, when you step out in faith, God is going to use that to inspire and encourage other people to do the same thing. Chapter 8. And I've just titled chapter 8, How Soon We Forget. <laughs> now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this? by not calling us when we went to fight with the Midianites. And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, what have, I, what have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? So they're mad. They're like, why didn't you bring us into the beginning of this? And, you know, 
Gideon handles this well, you know, because if he answers incorrectly, we could end up in a civil war. But, you know, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stirs up anger. And so he just says, listen, I'm nothing compared to you guys. What you guys did, I mean, okay, we started this fight, but look what you did. I mean, you killed the, these two guys. I mean, it's far more significant of what you did. And so he's trying to bring appeasement, which actually works. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. And that's exactly what Gideon did. He stopped it. The water is, you know, is released, and he's like, oh, no, 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 listen. You guys are, you did far better. But, you know, I think there is a little bit of a pride issue going on here with Ephraim. And then in verses 4, all the way down to um, verse 17, um, two different villages, Penuel, verse 8, and Succoth, both of these villages are asked to help out with um, supplies. Give us some bread. We've been fighting. We've been running. And both of them say, you're on your own. We're not helping you out. I mean, no way. What, you know... You started this fight, you can finish this fight. And Gideon says to them both, he said, you're going to pay for this. And, um, and exactly is what happens for those at Succoth. They, um, he ends up using briars and brambles and just you know, thrashes them and, and brings them to a very painful death at Penuel. He ends up destroying the tower and killing the men of this city. And so there's severe consequences for not engaging in the battle, and um, you, you know that hospitality was everything in the culture back then. And so to not show um, the hospitality of giving them provisions was a big deal, especially in a moment like this. And so uh, this lack of hospitality by the Gadites, because this is the region of the Gadites, they end up paying dearly for it. And maybe the Gadites were reasoning, hey, we're on the other side of the Jordan, and we're vulnerable to these guys. They come from here. We're not going to get caught up in your your stuff, but it was their stuff as well. So chapter 8, verse 22, starting to wrap this up here. Uh, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Good job, Gideon. Way to go. I mean, he, you know, he's, he understands there's so many wonderful things about Gideon. And he says, verse 24, I would like to make a request, just that small, itty-bitty little request, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was uh, 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the, the chains, which were around their camels' necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. In other words, they started to worship it. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian sub was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. Um, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So, big mistake. Now, this is, this is pretty spectacular. This ends up being um, 350 ounces of gold. 30 pounds of gold. That's about $750,000 by today's time. This is not just some small little, just, you know, whatever you can spare. Bring. This is... Massive. And he makes this ephod, it's like a vestment, um, and, and, and it becomes something that they begin to worship. And um, it is a snare to him, it is a snare to the people. And um, this was not a garment that he hid away and just, you know, put up in the attic and nobody, no. It was prominently displayed in his city, and it becomes an incredible snare to them. And, you know, this is the thing, we've got to be so careful, um, there are things that can easily turn us away. This wealth and this, which becomes a you know, symbol of victory, becomes a huge snare. It's a big pride catch. I mean, and, and this is the interesting thing is, is you know, he, he handled so well uh, humility in so many places, and yet he ends up getting caught and he's snared. You know another snare? Bad company. Bad company is a snare. Not only is wealth a snare, 
um, if it's not handled properly, okay? Um, but if we don't handle um, our relationships properly, they can become a snare too. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You hang out with people that are uh, living unrighteously and you're not being a light and a witness, watch out. And you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen to me. What is the fourth word of this verse? Deceived. Every place in Scripture where you see the exhortation to not be deceived is where deception happens all the time. So think of the, the company you have. I'm not saying don't have unchristian friends. Have them and witness to them and, and, and love them and bring them to Christ. But when the relationship begins to serve your social needs rather than the kingdom's needs, you must be on guard. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So esteeming the opinion of people over the word of the Lord can be a snare in your life as well. There are many things that need to be a snare. For them, it ended up being this very costly garment, and they end up worshiping it. Well, as we close here in the last few verses, we come to the death of Gideon, and it says, Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were uh, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech, and that's what chapter 9 is going to be about. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and buried him in the tomb of Joash, his father, and Ophrah, the Bezerites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done. So you kind of get a mixed bag at the end of his life, really. I mean, it's just like, okay, he did good, and, um, and yet he set them up for incredible failure. And um, so, you know, we need to learn these lessons of... Um, walking in purity and holiness and being true to the Lord. So, are you being called into a task too big for you? Well, if you're called to anything, it's too big for you. Yes. Walk into it and don't be afraid of it. Look to the Lord. Let him put it, pray for his Holy Spirit to come upon you afresh for that, that work that he's calling you to do. It's like, what do you believe in? You know, one blessing or two blessings? You mean... I believe I need the blessing of the Holy Spirit every time I put my hand to anything. Forget first and second blessing. Every time I stand to teach, I'm praying to be filled with the Spirit. Every time you go to teach the kids, every time you go to do anything in the name of the Lord, we need to be filled afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. Read the book of Acts. God will make circumstances impossible so that, so that we will know that it is His power who performed the work. We don't like that. Our flesh resists that. And often that's why we even conclude God's not in it, because it's just too big and it's too hard. And the Lord's like, no, that's exactly why I'm in it. I made it too big and too hard. I made it so impossible for you, and yet that's exactly what I want you to do. You know, 300 to 132, 135,000, whatever that number is exactly. And so, you know, don't measure things by your own ability. Um, measure them by God's ability. You know, and when you measure by God's ability, nothing's too hard. I mean, you know, we're talking about a you know, building project, and if I told you, hey, for the next building project, we're going to have all the fourth and fifth grade kids do the project. <laughs> you would say, that's impossible. And the reason you say it's impossible is because of the ability of those who are doing it. But if I was to say to you, we're hiring you know, the best construction firm we can find, they're going to come in and they're going to do this. You're like, okay, yeah, they come in and they do it. They've got the skills to do it. So that's easy. Fourth or fifth graders, impossible. And so we measure the difficulty of a task by the one that's doing it. We're the ones doing the task. It's impossible. We are the fourth and fifth graders. But the Spirit of the Lord will be upon us. So don't, don't dismiss yourself. And don't forget the lessons uh, learned in the past in your life and in your experience with the Lord, finish well. Finish your race well. We want to cross the, the finish line hearing the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You don't want him to hear him say, well, at least you made it. <laughs> right? 
We don't want to be those that are saved as by fire. We want to be those that hear well done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing account of your power and your might. Lord, it speaks to us on so many different levels. And I pray that you would stir up faith in our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would hear you speak and that we would answer and we would run into the things that you are calling us to do. And that we won't measure them by the ability of, the, of ourself or others around us, but we will measure this by your abilities, Lord. And if you're calling us into a situation where you're making it just impossible, 300, then Lord, may we, may we sense what you're saying and what you're doing and not run from it, but run completely into it. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to be a light. We want to be a witness. We want to encourage others. So we just submit ourselves afresh to you in your hands. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.